Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. This week, we're going to be looking at Guardians of the Galaxy 3 by James Gunn, and we're going to be talking about flashbacks and exposition and how to use flashbacks and how to bury exposition in your screenplay. Now, the interesting thing about Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is that it's actually not just one story. It's actually two stories taking place in two different time periods that are juxtaposed together and that collide at the end of the screenplay. The first story is very typical Guardians of the Galaxy fair. It's big, it's funny, it's action-packed, it's larger than life, it's ridiculous, it's wonderful, it's got a great soundtrack, and it's about this ragtag family defeating evil. And underneath it, like in every Guardians of the Galaxy movie, there's a theme of loss that permeates everything that is done on the biggest, boldest possible palette that you could have as a screenwriter. But then there's another story, right? There's another movie. You could actually pull these two movies out and look at them differently. Technically, it's a flashback, but it's also its own story, right? Which is the story of how Rocket the Raccoon became Rocket the Raccoon. And, and this story is actually almost built like a play, right? It takes place almost entirely in one cage, it is a tiny little character-driven story. If you pulled it out, you'd have a beautiful contained short about three animals who become Rocket's friends and family. And there are going to be some spoilers ahead. Like all Guardians of the Galaxy movie, you know where this is going. It's built around loss. You know he's going to lose them. And... What's really interesting is that the emotional center of this installment of Guardians of the Galaxy is really built around that flashback that most people would tell you, this isn't even a screenplay. This is a play, right? No, it's Guardians of the Galaxy. It's supposed to have all these crazy action sequences. And it does. If you go to a Guardians of the Galaxy movie and you don't feel that funny action adventure, sci-fi, crazy, awesome soundtrack, larger than life stuff, you're going to be mad. But buried underneath there is this beautiful little play about how Rocket became Rocket and this beautiful family that came together and was destroyed. And there's so much that I love about that, right? Now, the first thing is it shows you that if you deliver to the audience the main thing they're coming for, they will let you get away with nearly anything else. You could do a little play buried inside your giant movie. And as long as it ties together thematically, and as long as you're giving them the big action sequences they want, you're fine. And that doesn't mean that everything needs to be buried under action sequences. Some people come to a Sundance movie, right, because they want to cry. People come to a comedy because they want to laugh. Uh, people come to a romantic comedy because they want to believe that love is possible. And if you do these things, you can get away with nearly anything else, right? Remembering that you got to hit your genre elements, the genre elements that you want to watch in your movie. And when you do that, that gives you a tremendous amount of freedom to really say whatever you want to say and to go to places that would not be expected. So 
first I want to talk about how the flashback works. Uh, in general, it's our job as screenwriters to externalize the internal. If a character has a feeling, a motion, a memory, our job generally is to turn that feeling, that memory, that thought into an action that they do in the present, right? Our job is to externalize the internal chaos of all people and all characters, right? And to put it into something that we can see because movies and TV shows are a visual medium. And this leads me to a way that you can think about flashbacks before we get into the details of Guardians of the Galaxy, a way you can think about flashbacks in your own screenwriting because so often flashbacks stink. Um, they don't have to stink. Some of the greatest movies ever are built with flashbacks. Uh, the Godfather 2. What would it be without flashbacks? Blue Valentine. What would it be without flashbacks, right? There are some movies that are... Sophie's Choice. What would it be without flashbacks? But there are some movies where the flashbacks don't work where the flashbacks feel false and expositional, where the flashbacks feel like somebody who doesn't really know how to tell a joke, right? Three guys walk into a bar. Oh, oh my God, I forgot to tell you. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're teenagers. Okay, so three teenagers walk into a bar. Oh, no, I forgot to tell you. One of them's wearing Nikes, right? It starts to feel like a really bad joke, right? Like you are whispering directly into the audience's ear. That happens when flashbacks are expositional. Uh, so I want to quickly define exposition. Exposition is the crap that the audience needs to know. It's usually a lot less crap than you think it is, but it's the crap that the audience needs to know. Because if the audience doesn't get this crap, they're not going to get the movie. And often screenwriters think that flashbacks are the answer to give that crap to the audience. And sometimes they're right, but often they are dead wrong. Often they're dead wrong because flashbacks for the audience often can take us out of the story. And often they're wrong because when flashbacks are purely expositional, the audience tends to not even remember the information that you gave them. And to make matters worse, <laughs> sometimes flashbacks don't work because the audience doesn't even need the information. Because sometimes if you just found a way to externalize the internal feeling, we wouldn't need to know why. We would just need to know that. And maybe we could even go back and tell ourselves the story in a way that's really fascinating, right? We, we might actually start to go, hmm, I wonder if something like this happened to the character. Oh, I wonder if... So if you think, for example, of Thelma and Louise, we never find out exactly what happened in Texas. Thank God. But it's so wonderful to watch her keep on saying, I don't talk about Texas. It's so wonderful to watch her make the choice. No, we're not going to drive through Texas, even though it makes sense, right? We know that something terrible happened in Texas and we can start to tell ourselves the story. And just like the shark under the water, the story we tell ourselves is much more interesting than anything that Callie Curry could possibly have flashed back to. So, Flashbacks often don't work because they're unnecessary, because they're loaded with too much information, and because they feel like an aside to the audience. 
In general, the same is true for any exposition. Almost always you need about one one hundredth of the amount of exposition that you are actually putting in your screenplay. There's a great quote uh, by David Mamet. Um, the grammar is his, um, uh, and so are the epithets. Uh, David Mamet basically says, any asshole in a suit can be trained to tell you, I'd really like to know more about this character. I'd really like to know more information. I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, but by the time you've made the penguin happy, both you and he will be out of a job because the audience doesn't come for information. The character comes for action. And the way he defines action is what does her want and what happens if her don't get it? That is what the audience is actually coming for. And so often when we're doing exposition, we're just giving too much crap that doesn't actually matter. And often when we're doing flashbacks, we're doing the same thing. We're going, oh, by the way, did I mention that this, this happened with the father? Oh, oh, did I mention that this, right? We're telling the joke badly. And yet at the same time, sometimes flashbacks really work brilliantly. And sometimes exposition can work brilliantly. Uh, there's a wonderful moment in Spaceballs, Dark Helmet, uh, enters the scene and there's uh, a bunch of exposition between Dark Helmet and Captain Asshole where they basically tell you everything about the planet Spaceball and why there's no oxygen and what their plan is. And there's a wonderful moment where Dark Helmet turns to the camera and says, you get all that? And I love this moment, not only because it's hilarious, but because so many writers inadvertently are doing this all the time. They're literally going, you get all that? to the audience in a way that's not fun, right? In a way that reminds us that we're not actually experiencing a movie. We are being told a movie. So we don't want to do that. What we want to do is we want to bury our exposition. We want to bury the minimum amount of exposition we can. And we want to make sure that our flashbacks are justified, necessary, and structural. And so here are some keys that you can use to do that. The first question I like to ask myself before I do a flashback is who's flashing back? Is it the character or is it the audience? If it is the audience flashing back, there is a 90% chance that your flashback is crap. There's a 90% chance that your flashback isn't necessary. There's a 90% chance that you just have not fully done your job as a screenwriter to externalize the internal, right? That rather what you've done is you've cheated. You've put some, some notes in, right? You're saying, did you get all that to the audience? Because you haven't found the craft yet to really weave it into the story. Um, the second question you want to ask, let's say you go, oh, no, 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 no. The character is flashing back. Good. Okay you have a much better chance of it working. But the next question you want to ask yourself is, could they have flashed back five minutes before or five minutes after? Because if they could, you now know that it's not motivated. You haven't earned it. If you could have flashed back five minutes before or five minutes after, if they're thinking about this all the time, right, then it's not actually moving the story in any direction, right? you're still just doing a version of did you get all that for the audience? Even though the character happens to be flashing back, nothing special has happened to force them to flash back. 
Whereas if the only moment they could flash back is this moment right now, then there's a very good chance your flashback's going to work, right? Because you've earned it. It's motivated. It's structural. It's there for a reason. The third question that I like to ask myself is, did the character make a different choice on the other side of the flashback? Did they make a different choice than they would have made if they didn't have the flashback? And I know if they did make a different choice, that the flashback is now structural. It's for the character, it's motivated and earned, and it's structural. It's there for a reason. It moves the story forward. In other words, it's even though it's happening in the past, it's actually linearly happening in the present for the character, just like in all of our lives, right? We all have flashbacks all the time. We all have thoughts all the time and memories all the time, but the only ones that matter structurally in our lives are when we remember something and then we make a new choice in this moment where the past actually becomes present, where the internal actually becomes externalized, right? Because this is our job. We have to externalize the internal. We have to make the past present. This is our job as screenwriters. Now, these are not rules of flashbacks. There are no rules. This is art. It's your job to prove me wrong. It's your job to find another way to do it. Um, you just need to make sure you're doing it for a reason and you're doing something beautiful with it. But these are wonderful rules of thumb to think about with most flashbacks. Which brings us back to Guardians of the Galaxy. Because, hold on a second, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 actually begins with a flashback. We don't know exactly what the flashback means, but we are seeing a really menacing hand grabbing into a cage with a bunch of terrified baby raccoons. Who's flashing back? What seems like a violation of my rules, right? Who's flashing back? Nobody. The audience is. And when we catch up to Rocket, we don't necessarily know if Rocket is thinking about that at all. Rocket's just rocking out to some great music. And Rocket's really much more concerned at that moment with his good friend Star-Lord, who is super drunk, than he is with anything related to the past. So it seems like this is a violation of my rules. Um, and this is why it's so important to understand that there's also a different kind of flashback. Uh, there are some flashbacks that pop back to the past, affect the present, and come back to the future. But there's another form of flashback that is actually a separate story intercut with the story you're telling. This is how my movie, The Matthew Shepard Story, is told. This is how The Godfather 2 is told. This is how Blue Valentine is told. And this is how Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is told. It's actually two stories that put pressure on each other, that put pressure on each other tonally, that put pressure on each other structurally. And the character experiencing those two stories is the audience. But in this form of flashback, the structure comes from the 
pressure between the two stories, and it comes from the way the flashbacks stack up. So when you're thinking about flashbacks like this, the flashbacks are not reminiscences, or at least not purely reminiscences of a character that affect the present. The flashbacks are actually their own movie with their own structure. And that's what we're seeing in Rocket's story, the way it's served to the audience. You still have to do the same thing. You still have to earn your cuts, right? You can't just go back to the past. You have to earn it. Something has to happen that makes it feel like it's worth going back to the past or like it's worth going back to the present. You still have to earn it, but you can earn it in a different way right? It's not necessarily as tied to character. Now, of course, James Gunn still does find a way to tie this to Rocket's journey. I want to warn you, I'm going to spoil the beginning of the movie right now. Um, so if you have not yet seen the movie, you, now is a safe time to put it on pause and come back. So early in the movie, Rocket the raccoon, it, there's an attempt to abduct him and he is mortally wounded. And his, the, the electronics inside him basically have a kill switch where if the right code isn't entered, any attempts to save his life will actually kill him. And this is what gives the Guardians their new mission, right? They have to go retrieve this code from the man who made rocket. And of course that man is horrifically deranged and obsessed with rocket. Um, so this is their mission. They've got, as they say, a hundred times in guardians of the galaxy, they've got to go save their friend. This is their job. This is their mission. Now rocket is a vital part of guardians of the galaxy, right? As we were talking about earlier, if you give people what they came for, they will be delighted. But if you don't give them rocket, in Guardians of the Galaxy, or if you don't give them Rocket in 90% of Guardians of the Galaxy, we got a problem. The audience came for Rocket. They love Rocket. You can't just kill him at the beginning and still have a movie that makes the audience happy. Or he can't just spend the whole time in a hospital bed. And so the way that James Gunn deals with that is by making the past present. He keeps Rocket alive, even as his friends are trying to save his life, by going back to the past and telling this other story that linearly grows, that structurally grows, but that intercuts with the fun action-adventure stuff. He builds a little play. Um, now, Rocket, in this case, can't follow Jake's normal rules, right? Um, Yes, it's possible to say, well, with the exception of that first image of the piece, which maybe is just like a fun little teaser for the audience, we're actually kind of flashing back. Maybe Rocket is remembering all this stuff while he lies on the hospital bed. But when we come back from each individual flashback, there's nothing he can do that's different. There's nothing he can do that's different because he's literally stuck in a hospital bed dying. He's completely immobilized. 
So instead, the way this piece works is that the structure is contained in the flashbacks themselves. It's actually the flashback story that's growing. It's actually a different character, a different version of Rocket that we are watching. It's a, actually a very typical uh, superhero movie trope. It's the creation story that we're watching intercut with the salvation story. These two stories are putting pressure on each other and all those flashbacks are going to stack up. But at the end of the movie, again, I'm going to ruin a little bit, when Rocket is saved, he's going to make a different choice based on all those flashbacks that we've seen. So even though some of the elements that we talked about are not honored in the way that we're used to, in this form of flashback, we get the structure out of the way the flashbacks relate to each other, out of the way that the past and present put pressure on each other, but still we're seeing the golden rule number three, right? At the end of all of that, the character makes a different choice based on the flashback. Again, it doesn't have to be that way. In The Godfather Part 2, we don't actually see Michael make a different choice based on what happened to Vito or vice versa, right? These are just two stories that put pressure on each other. One is the story of Vito becoming the godfather and he's doing it for all the right reasons. And the other is the story of the aftermath of this, of Michael who just can't get himself out of the ugliness who's killing his own brother, right? It's just the pressure of the story. So what's important to understand is, yes, these are really good rules of thumb for most flashbacks when we're just flashing back once. But these are not required rules, right? These are just ways of thinking about flashbacks because all of this is actually just serving a couple of very simple concepts, right? The first concept is externalizing the internal. Our job is to take what's inside the character and get it out into visuals and actions and things the character does. Number two is the idea of making the past present, that somehow the past needs to be present, right? That the past can't just live back there. It needs to inflect the present day story, even if it's just doing it at a emotional symbolic level, even if it's just doing it by putting pressure on those two stories by their juxtapositions of feelings or tone or structure or the journeys of the characters. And finally, and most importantly, flashbacks need to be structural. They either need to be structural within the present day story, or they need to be structural in connection to each other, right? So that we can feel movement rather than static, so that we can still feel like we are moving forward rather than moving backwards or standing in place. The important thing to remember is that movies move, TV moves, even plays move. They move forward. They do not stay in one place. So if you are staying in one place or even worse, if you are going backwards, you have to ask yourself, how do I make it structural? The story that we end up seeing is such a beautiful story and it's the emotional heartbeat of the piece. The thing that all the Guardians of the Galaxy movies have in common is that they make you cry. And the way they make you cry is by plucking your heartstrings, and the way they pluck your heartstrings is around the theme of loss. If you've listened to my previous Guardians of the Galaxy podcast for version one and version two, you have already immersed yourself in this idea of theme and how it works through these wonderful action movies. 
in this movie, what we're really going to watch is we are going to watch two different families, right? We're going to watch the idea, right, that it's good to have friends. And in the past story, we're going to watch the story of Rocket making his first friends. It starts with a really beautiful scene, right? This poor little creature first gets abducted by this scary hand that we'll later learn who it belongs to. And then when we catch up in the next flashback, he has been put in a cage and his head is, has obviously been operated on and he can now speak and he says one word. He says, hurts. And he meets these three other creatures who are kind to him. Uh, the characters that well, are also developing their own language, who have also been surgically altered, right? Who have also been part of this experiment. And these creatures believe that they are going to a utopia, right? They are being built for a utopia and they don't know that they are really just the test subjects along the way. And they name themselves. They name themselves Lila, the primary relationship with Rocket. Teeths, the modified walrus. And Floor, the not so bright but very sweet modified rabbit. And these three characters, together with Rocket, become a family. They learn to dream of a better life together and they develop this theme of it's good to have friends. And meanwhile, in the present day story, we're watching another version of that theme happening. Star-Lord, Star-Lord has been reunited with a Gamora who's come back to life but has no memory of her past who doesn't understand their love, who doesn't understand even that they are friends, who doesn't even understand that it's good to have friends. And Star-Lord, of course, is still wildly in love with her and wishing for something that can no longer be because this piece is always about loss and is unaware are not completely aware that he's just been hopping to hopping to hopping from woman to woman to woman, trying to fill something in himself that really can only be filled by going home. And this group that is so different comes together as friends to save their friends because it's good to have friends and they become a family again. And Gamora comes to care about Star-Lord again. And I'm going to ruin a little bit. I'm going to ruin a lot again. Um, but for the purposes of education, it's important to understand this. Gamora ultimately is going to have this beautiful line. I bet we were fun. Which is an acknowledgement after refusing to acknowledge that there ever could have been anything between him, her and Star-Lord which is an acknowledgement that something beautiful once existed. But of course, by the end of the piece, this is a piece about loss. It's lost. In fact, the friendships are broken apart. 
And in the past story, we're watching the same thing happen, right? We're watching the friendships be broken apart, right? Because that's what happened. They're not broken in the same way. Uh, in the past, what happens, of course, is that Rocket's friends are killed. They are terminated because they are not necessary. Only Rocket has value to his creator. And all of Rocket's dreams of a utopia are killed with them. And all of this culminates at the end to a really wonderful, fun, and maybe even politically relevant moment where after saving all of these, all the higher life forms, the, the children that were going to be either forced into some horrible utopia or probably destroyed by the high evolutionary, the creator, after all of them are saved, Rocket makes a different decision, and it's a different decision that is based on all of those flashbacks. It's the completion of that chronological structural journey, which is he's not just going to save the kids, even if it means risking his own life. He's going to save all of the test animals on that spaceship, right? All of the lab rats, right? All of the creatures like him. And this is the completion of that structural journey, right? Um, in between, there's a really gorgeous moment. So almost all of this has taken place in the play, but there's a moment, again, I'm ruining a little bit, but where Rocket, it looks like he's going to die. And this is the moment that makes you cry because he actually gets to go to his little utopia. And there is Lila waiting for him. And he realizes they're going to get to be together. And then she says, not yet. Right? And so underneath this really wonderfully silly, silly, silly action movie is this beautiful little play about this troubled raccoon who has lost the friends that he most loved and who's become the person he's become because of that. Finding and then losing them again, at least for a time, but making a new choice that changes him forever. This is a structural journey where these two independent chronological structural pieces come together into one film. This is how you build structure with flashbacks. This is how you use flashbacks for structure rather than exposition. But what about exposition? What if you got exposition that you absolutely have to deal with? Sometimes you can bury exposition under an action. Sometimes you can bury exposition under a choice. Sometimes you can sneak in exposition. And sometimes you just have to find a really fun way of dealing with that exposition. And fortunately, we also have an example of this in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Remember, we need the bare minimum of exposition possible. And if you're going to do an exposition dump, first, try not to. But if you must, do it in the most fun, wonderful way that feeds the genre monster of your particular show, right? So in this piece, we are coming, we want to laugh 
and we want to be entertained by action. That's why we are coming to Guardians of the Galaxy, and we want to cry a little bit, right? We want to cry a little bit as well. That's why we come. Those are the genre elements. That is the genre monster that you are feeding. And your exposition can't just exist as an addendum or a footnote to that. It has to be woven into that. Um, but you got a problem when you're at Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. James Gunn has got a problem, which is a lot of crazy, incomprehensible crap has happened in the two previous episodes. Enough crap that the exposition dump for us to actually get that is so big it would take a whole movie just to capture all of it, just to get all the details. So you have to boil it down to what is the bare minimum that the audience needs to actually understand what's happening. What we need to understand for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 to make any sense for us, the exposition that we absolutely need, we need to know that Star-Lord loved Gamora. We need to know that she has no idea who he is and no memories of who she was. And we have to believe, if we haven't seen the other two movies or if we don't remember them, we have to believe that that makes some kind of sense. That's actually what we need. That is all the exposition we need. That's all we need about the past. Everything else can be dramatized. Even the magical arrow that we may know nothing about, we can just watch the character playing with it and trying to use it. And we can feel the success when he finally does it. And we can feel the structure of that even if we remember nothing of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. We don't need all the exposition. We just need a piece. We need to know who Gamora is. We need to know that she doesn't know who she is. We need to know that Star-Lord loves her. And we need to know that there's some reason why all this happened that makes some sense. So watch how they deal with this in this wonderful scene in the elevator. I'm so sorry about this, Yura. Oh, please. We're here to save the life of our friend. That is all. We paid her to help us get in and get out. You'd think that'd mean, oh, I'm gonna help you do it in a way that no one knows it's happening. But no, what she means is I'm gonna shoot people, threaten people's Shut lives. Up. So here's what's wonderful. We've started out, Star-Lord has come with a very strong objective, which is let's do this without hurting anybody. Gamora, who has no memory of her friendships, who the Guardians are, who he is or who she is, um, takes the violent route. And this is going to be the ongoing debate between these two characters. Even though this scene in the elevator is an exposition dump, it's an exposition dump for a reason. The purpose of the exposition dump is to make sure you know those three things we talked about. But the way they're doing it, the scene is not about the exposition. The scene is about, I love you, Gamora, but I don't love this you. The scene is about you're not being who you're supposed to be. And the scene is about playing all that because it's Guardians of the Galaxy for humor and for pathos. And the scene is about the gag of this poor woman who's been held hostage, who, Starlord is right, kind of has a crush on him. But Gamora doesn't believe him and she's trying to take her own route because she has no memory of who he is, who she is, and how all this shit is supposed to work. And I know you're probably asking, why would I trust her? Well, that's a good question. 
The answer is, we used to be in love. Yeah, she was my girlfriend, only she doesn't remember it because it wasn't her. Because her dad threw her off a magic cliff and she died, and then I lost my temper and nearly destroyed half the universe. And she came back out of the past. There she is. Everyone else who died in the past stayed dead, not her. Why? Was it the magic cliff? I don't know. That's some freaking Infinity Stone scientist. And some dumbass Earth dude who met a girl, fell in love. That girl died. And then came back a total dick. So you see how this is structured, right? We get the exposition dump. But the exposition dump is being used for two reasons. It's the game of the scene. Number one, it's being used to make this poor hostage feel really, really uncomfortable. And number two, it is being used to say to Gamora, don't you remember who I am? Don't you still love me? Is this really how you want to be? And finally, it's being used to land the genre of the piece, to feed the genre monster. We're going to end on a joke. She came back a total dick. All that exposition has been hidden under fun. There's a structure of a character who wants Gamora to love him and wants her to do it the way she used to do it. And Gamora, who doesn't understand who he is, what he wants, or why he keeps having these expectations of her, who just wants to get through this with violence the way she's been taught in her new embodiment. There is the game of that, and underneath that game, we get all the exposition we need. We understand who Gamora is. We understand he loves her. We understand that there's some reason why that all happened, even though we probably don't actually understand any of the things he said unless we have actually watched the previous two movies. The importance is the gist, the key elements that the audience must take away, not all of the details. In fact, even the writers acknowledge this, even the characters acknowledge this in this scene. You left out some important information, but that is the gist of it. You could see with Nebula's little tag, her little punchline there, that this is just another version of you get all that, but not the bad kind of you get all that, the good kind of you get all that. There's a, a meta level to what's happening that feeds the humor of this piece in that if we remember what happens, we get it. And if we don't remember what happens, we're basically being told you didn't need to get all that. This is a lesson in exposition. The lesson is... It's about the big things that the audience must take away, not about all the little details. It's not about the past. It's about how the past becomes present, just like it's becoming present in this scene. That flashbacks and exposition actually work the same way. Their job is to drive the structure of the piece forward and to feed the genre monster of what you are building. So go have some fun with flashbacks. Go bury some exposition, and remember that your job as a screenwriter is never information. Your job as a screenwriter is drama. If you're enjoying this podcast and you're getting a lot out of it, come study with me. We have a free class every Thursday night. We have foundation classes in screenwriting and TV writing. We have a master class for more experienced writers, and we have a ProTrack mentorship program that will pair you with a professional writer who will meet with you every week or every other week and mentor you through every draft through your entire career for the tiniest fraction of what you pay for a single semester of grad school.
Come check it out. It's all online, writeyourscreenplay.com. Link in bio.